Welcome to Empowering Minds, the podcast series from Mental Health Europe. I'm Ben, your podcast host, together with Marie Fallon, MHE Policy Manager. In this episode, we're looking into the use of coercive measures in mental health services and its existing alternatives. Coercive measures refer to involuntary, forced or non-consensual practices used against people with mental health problems. This can either be any placement in or commitment to a hospital or other institution against someone's wishes, any treatment administered against someone's wishes, seclusion in a room or area from which a person cannot freely exit, preventing or restricting a person from moving through physical restraint or mechanical restraint by using devices or using medication to control behaviors, which is called chemical or pharmacological restraint. We thought we'd give a bit of extra context to our listeners who may not all be familiar with some human rights concepts or conventions here. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the UNCRPD, is a binding United Nations Human Rights Treaty for Persons with Disabilities, signed and ratified by all EU member states and the EU itself. The UNCRPD came into force in 2008 and supports the transition of all mental health services and laws towards totally consensual practices free from coercion. As this entails major challenges for mental health systems across Europe, we want to have a look at the discussions surrounding coercive measures and explore how to put an end to it. In today's episode, we'll first listen to discussions about the use of coercion and the tensions around it between Jane Buchanan, Deputy Director for Disability Rights at Human Rights Watch, Stephanie Woolley, board member of Advocacy France and of the European Network of Users, Ex-Users and Survivors of Psychiatry, and Marie Fallon, Policy Manager at Mental Health Europe. Good afternoon and welcome to our two guests and experts, Jane and Stephanie. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today about the important topic of coercive measures in mental health practice. Although the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities which was signed and ratified by all EU member states and the EU itself, prohibits any form of forced, involuntary or non-consensual practices. We know that there is an increase in the use of coercion across Europe, especially in some Western European countries. What are your thoughts on the use and even increase of coercive measures despite the adoption of the CRPD? The CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, is a very, very important instrument for users and survivors of psychiatry. This convention, as you said, uh, ratified by 177 countries and the European Union as a whole, is an instrument that gives us all the right to legal capacity on an equal basis with others. And the right to legal capacity means the right to decide yes or no to medical treatments. It means that there must be free and informed consent in healthcare and the right to refuse treatment, the right to have control over our bodies and our health. It's a respect for the integrity of the person and the right to be free from non-consensual medical treatment and intervention, as well as uh, the freedom from torture and other ill treatment. As you were saying, so 
Yes, very much so. We rely on this uh, convention and have embraced it and hope that the parties to the convention which have ratified it will respect it and slowly and surely recognize our equal rights. It's really, it's really bringing a new perspective on, uh, on persons, on the approach towards persons with disabilities. So instead of this uh, paternalistic medical approach, we, we, we now really consider persons as subjects of rights, right? Absolutely, and it's the idea of accepting all persons with disabilities as uh, part of human diversity, part of humanity, the right to be different, and under, an understanding based on the social aspects and the human rights aspects, and not the biomedical old paradigm we call it approach, because the convention calls for this new paradigm. And uh, I must say that uh, we are very lucky to have on board a number of NGOs such as Human Rights Watch at our side. And why do you think then that there is still a, an increase despite this convention? I think that despite the commitments uh, that, that states have made under the CRPD, um, states are still showing that they're that they're slow to understand what it means to fully implement the CRPD with all of its protections and equal rights guarantees for people with disabilities. And we know that in many countries around the world, there are there are good practices showing that there are non-coercive measures and interventions and supports that can be used in lieu of the coercive measures that are now prohibited. And so I think it's, it's part of it is just that having states be more aware of those types of practices and more open to them. And one really important piece of that is listening to the voices of people with disabilities, including those who have directly been affected by these harm, harmful practices, that they should be an integral part of any policy making. And that goes to the heart of the movement and that there should be nothing about us without us. And I think that once that we're in a really crucial moment here of transition where states have made a commitment under the CRPD, but are, are still slow to put it into practice. And so I think the roles of our advocacy organizations and finding allies within governments to promote those good practices, to include people with disabilities and a full range of disabilities and policy making is really what's what's going to turn this, what's going to take us to the to the next level in this in this major change that's underway right now. I agree completely. Of course, as a person myself, uh, who uh, really, I feel uh, I was a victim of psychiatry and this medical approach uh, to mental health problems or distress. And I can also say that to a certain extent, it was psychiatry that saved me from psychiatry, but it was a different psychiatry. It was care that treated me like an equal human being that listened to me. And this aspect of listening is very, very important. I totally agree as well. And I think um, a recent study that we did on 
promising practices to reduce and ultimately end coercion really shows that other practices that it were that uh, that alternatives or other ways to approach uh, persons who are experiencing a crisis, for example, really um, work. So it's it's about getting users, governments, service providers, communities work together to move away from um, from these uh, coercive pra practices. And what we identified as some of the um, factors of success is really. Um, support in the community, an increased uh, contact with um, staff or taking more time uh, to listen to users, as you mentioned, Stephanie, uh, and de-emphasize medication, uh, for example, and improve uh, physical environments. I don't know if you, um, if you agree with these uh, main factors of success. Of course, and uh, it's interesting when you turn the question around and you ask the authorities, you ask uh, policymakers, what would you prefer if you were in distress, if you had a serious problem and you were suicidal, for example? Would you want the police to come to your home and uh, take you away, lock you up in a facility and shoot you up with medication? or? Would you rather be in a safe, supportive place, able to talk about how you feel and what's going on in your life with peers, for example, with other people who have been through that situation to find a way out of your problems and the kind of support based on your will and your preferences as the convention provides for, in fact. And what would you say, um when you hear, you often hear in these discussions around coercion, you often hear the argument that for some people experiencing a crisis, coercive measures are the only solution. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Well, we know very well that the, that, that, that is not the case, that it's not the only solution. Um, and it's really a matter of, of governments taking the, the steps that are necessary so that those aren't the only option they're often become the only option because that's all that governments have in place. It's because they haven't um, looked to develop the community-based services that we know are rights respecting and actually more supportive um, in the way that people uh, need support. So in a way that's almost kind of um, a self-perpetuating argument if governments um, say that it's the only reason, but very often it's because that's the only policy and practices that, that they have in place. They, they haven't tried um, to implement new, new types of programs. So I would really challenge any government um, that, that says that and, um, and to really look at the evidence um, and again, the, the, the actual experience of, of people who've, who've lived through that uh, who can say firsthand that 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 isn't the only choice, and it's and it's in no way the the correct or best choice. That is true, and there are we see more and more uh, initiatives such as uh, uh, respite houses or crisis centers uh, that are available, often with uh, the support of peers, people who have been through these situations and uh, often with other methods such as open dialogue or other ways of 
family conferencing or friends conferencing to find the type of support a person needs. And another aspect that you often see it's also about early intervention or prevention really in the community. So to 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 be close to the person so that so that you have uh, you, you can you can respond when you see that uh, somebody is not doing well. Yeah, it really is like a whole system um, change and a whole system approach mm -hmm. that is that is going to make the long that's going to make a long term difference. Um, it's just it's just like preventive health and preventive services in in all kinds of areas, right? Where we we know that um, intervening early, providing services on a regular basis, then is what's going to forestall. Uh, prevent in many cases those real crisis moments um, that are the ones that seem to present the most challenges say for governments and, and others in terms of response. Yeah. Absolutely and uh, one of the important parts of that is the respect of what the person wants. People need to feel free to seek help and to reach out because one of the most devastating effects of coercion i can tell you personally is that once you have experienced that uh, you have no desire to reach out you do not want to get involved in any kind of uh, health system including uh, physical health care when you have been treated like that and deprived of your rights. And we must, we must remember that this is a form of discrimination against persons with psychosocial disabilities. And that is, is why it can apply to anyone at any time in their life, even if they do not identify as a person with a disability, which can be understandable in our community. This convention protects persons who have been disabled by society and by the uh, healthcare system. Yeah, so we can really say that uh, coercive measures are really reflect the failure of the, of the mental health system as it's currently in place. So one of the tensions that is um, surrounding this transition to a new culture, which is respectful of human rights of persons uh, with psychosocial disabilities, are the discussions that are taking place at the level of the Council of Europe regarding the draft additional protocol to the Oviedo Convention. So for our listeners, this is a legal instrument that is currently being discussed and that aims to regulate coercion um, and specifically involuntary placement and treatment of persons with so-called mental disorders. So all of our organizations have been involved in the opposition to the protocol. And I was wondering uh, if, you, if you could tell us a bit more uh, why you have been involved in this uh, advocacy against the draft additional protocol. Human Rights Watch op opposes the draft additional pro protocol because it is um, a huge step, it would be a huge step backwards in terms of protections of the rights of people with disabilities. It is, um, it directly contravenes the commitments that governments have made under the CRPD. The CRPD is really sets out the commitments that states should be undertaking in terms of protecting the rights of people with disabilities. We, there's no need for any other type of instrument 
let alone one that clearly contradicts those commitments. So commitments for governments to end coercive practices, to respect people with disabilities on an equal basis with, uh, with others, to guarantee free and informed consent, the right to liberty, non-discrimination, legal capacity. So we oppose the draft additional protocol. We will continue to, to vigorously oppose it um, and encourage states. Um, nearly all of the Council of Europe member states have ratified the CRPD and so really should be putting all of their energy and all of their efforts and all of this policy time <laughs> spent on this draft additional protocol actually into implementing practices that would help them meet their commitments under the CRPD to non-coercive measures. And I think it's particularly concerning that such a draft uh, comes from the Council of Europe, which is said to be the, the leading human rights organization uh, in Europe. So if such an organization sets the wrong example, uh, we at Mental Health Europe really think it's concerning for countries, um, especially as some are starting to reform their mental health laws to move away from coercion. And that this indeed can only be a step backwards if such a protocol is adopted. Of course, we can only agree from the standpoint of users and survivors of psychiatry. And what is really hard to believe is how, together with uh, so many members of the community, such as Mental Health Europe and uh, Human Rights Watch, or our special rapporteurs on the rights of persons with disabilities and the right to health, along with uh, human rights organizations in Europe, have all expressed their disagreement to this step backwards. And it's very difficult to understand, in spite of the major lobbying we have done, that this project, in total contradiction with the convention, the United Nations Convention, is continuing on a regional level, I mean on the European level. This will really lead to a two-track uh, human rights system, Confusion, as you said, uh, in terms of what policymakers in different states are already doing to eliminate coercion. And we are very concerned and have the intention to continue to fight against this Council of Europe initiative, just like we fought against the Council of Europe initiative to eliminate voting rights of persons with psychosocial disabilities a little while ago. And I hope that we will really continue our um to join our efforts against the continuous drafting and discussion, ongoing discussions. And as you say, Jane, that uh, policymakers start putting efforts into implementing positive and promising practices instead of uh, going back. So I think this brings us to the end of our um, discussion. And I would like to really thank you um, for your time and for your useful insights into this uh, topic on coercion. I don't know if you had anything that you wanted to add. I would just like to add that coercion is not care. That's a, that's a great finale. A, um, yeah. Thank you so much for organizing this. It's such an honor and a pleasure to uh, to discuss this and to keep collaborating with, with both of you. So thank you. Thank you. Here is Marie Fallon again. Further to this interesting discussion, 
We will now look into promising practices to reduce and ultimately end coercion in the mental health field. The first example we will discuss is a hospital-based practice in Sweden. I will talk to Emma to learn more about the project and how it looks like to implement human rights in practice. Emma, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? My name is Emma Broberg. I work as a regional developer uh, with the focus on human rights. Uh, and I work in region Västra land, Sweden. Welcome, Emma, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Some years ago, the region of Västra Götaland introduced a human rights training into the psychiatric wards of a regional hospital. Can you tell us a bit more about this training and how it contributed to the reduction of coercion? In 2011, the region Västra Götaland decided to form a political committee for human rights uh, with the mission to support the region in its work to uh, respect, fulfill and um, protect the human rights. Our political committee uh, were also very eager for us to test and to further develop the human rights based approach in the field of psychiatry. Uh, since the psychiatry is an area where human rights are really uh, tested to its uh, extreme um, and where we can find so many human rights uh, dilemmas. Uh, for example, when it comes to coercion, uh, questions of integrity. So that's why we came in contact with uh, a psychosis care chain in Gothenburg. Um, the name of it is Psychosis Care Chain Northeast. Uh, and it consists of one closed ward and also one open ward. Um, very much um, meeting and working with the same 600 uh, right holders. And if I understood well, you created working groups which gathered people with lived experience of mental ill health. And what did you do? Uh, so when it comes to the example of the psychosis care chain, uh, we had uh, three uh, right holders with own experience of uh, psychosis um, that um, participated in the working group. We started to learn about human rights, um, mm -hmm. both in general, um, and also we discussed which human rights that were merely in focus for the specific business. Um, for example, the right to um, mental and uh, physical health. And we also looked at uh, uh, general comments uh, from, from the UN, uh, we also looked at the criticism that Sweden is getting from UN mm -hmm. uh, and other documents of, of uh, relevance uh, for the work. And I like to underline that um, that all the participants in the working group groups uh, contributed with um, perspectives that were equally. Uh, important. Um, the rights holders uh, with their own experience and their own personal stories um, and also the professional knowledge from the healthcare staff. After, um, after a while of um, uh, having uh, trainings and discussions and reflections about uh, different dilemmas, um, the working group within the psychiatry, they formed an action plan uh, for, for their work um, targeting specific dilemmas 
that they wanted to highlight during the process. And one of these uh, dilemmas was the use of uh, coercive uh, measures within uh, the psychiatry, and which was an area where um, I would say everyone, both the, the right holders, the users, uh, and also the staff, the professionals, uh, really wanted to use a human rights and human rights-based approach as a way of reducing um, coercive um, measures. And so to what did the exchanges and dialogues lead? They sort of landed in that uh, they had a lot of Un unnecessary uh, really rules and regulations uh, that just caused frustration. For example, they, there were regulations about how many cups of coffee you were allowed to, to take uh, mm. when you uh, were a patient at the ward. So it was a system that wasn't, it wasn't flexible uh, for the uh, the individual um, person, uh, mm -hmm. really. By doing by doing that, um, the the staff and the users uh, landed in uh, um, a way where they removed many of these um, unnecessary uh, rules and regulations. Uh, and after that, all the staff started to uh, train themselves uh, parallel with the training in human rights. They trained themselves in a, a low effective uh, way of working, uh, which is a way of working where you, uh, you sort of you meet the individual um, as soon as you see that someone is starting to get a bit worried or or mm -hmm. yeah so so um so you just meet uh, at the more uh, human uh, level uh, and um, it allows that um, this, the situation that before uh, scaled up to to big um, frustrations and so on they were like uh, they calmed uh, themselves yeah. very yeah. very early Mm -hmm. uh, so so um, now uh, there is a much calmer uh, environment, um, both from, um, uh, from uh, the experience of the users and also the staff, and mm -hmm. also um, that um, the users are more, yeah, they say thank you when they leave, and uh, it's, it's a, a much better environment for, for everyone. After implementing more flexibility and de-escalation techniques, what were the main results? From having to um, to use um, coercive um, measures uh, before 2012, maybe four times uh, per per month. Uh, since 2012, uh, it's been like uh, four four times in total. So there is a huge um, decrease in the use of coercive measures. That is really great results. And if I understood well, the work also aimed at empowering users in a broader sense. The, the closed ward has also worked more broadly with the, to highlight the participation of the, um, the users, the right holders. Um, for example, the, the staff highlighted the right to vote in general elections um, at 
award. Um, they they made um, people from our city council to to come to the award and uh, mm -hmm. gave the the users um, the possibility uh, to 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 vote. And this was also something that really gave the the users um, empowerment. Was there then a specific follow-up of this project? In 2015, uh, we started the process uh, of um, putting forward an action plan on human rights uh, for the entire region, Västra Götaland. Uh, and here we, uh, we took many of the um, experiences from this project, I would say. Uh, and among that, we have one of the 12 targets in, in our action plan is actually a zero vision uh, for uh, coercive measures within uh, uh, our entire psychiatry uh, sec section. So we have used the experience from this uh, project uh, also to form the policy level um, at the, the entire region. Uh, so this really gives uh, us the mandate to continue um, scaling up this, um, this um, project and also all the experiences that we have. That is really positive. To see that a specific project based on dialogue and exchange leads to zero vision on coercion for the entire region. Thank you so much, Emma, for telling us about this successful project, which we hope will serve as a basis for future similar practices. Another interesting practice we identified comes from Greece and is a community-based practice. This time I'm glad to talk to Dimitris to hear more about the project and its implementation. Hi Dimitris, can you tell me a bit more about yourself? My name is Dimitris Tataridis and I'm working for the Society of Social Psychiatry and Mental Health in Greece. Welcome Dimitris and thank you for taking the time to talk to us about the mental health mobile units. How did this all start? The first mobile mental health unit started its operation in Fokida as a pilot project of the Ministry of Labour in 1981 to explore how to cover mental health services needs for the population of remote areas. Now there are approximately 25 mobile mental health units in Greece. And so what is so particular about these units? Mobile units of mental health are the foundation stones of the provision of mental health services and the protection of the rights of mental health people, especially in remote areas, which is a particularity of Greece, as there are many islands and mountainous villages. What would you consider factors of success? Prevention, informing the local inhabitants, timely intervention and intervention in crisis, therapeutic treatment and maintaining contact with both the family and the patient, but also the community, have been all undertaken by the mobile units. How do the units work? Mobile mental health units work in collaboration with local services and authorities. The mobile unit offers its services as close to the patient's place as possible. Its main objective is dealing with psychiatric issues in the community without having to cut the, the, the patient from the community. The local society, 
the neighborhood, other health services in the prefecture, as well as key individuals, local authorities, police department, etc., but actively participate in the work of the mobile unit, securing that the patient right to remain an active member of the community and avoid hospitalization, especially the involuntary hospitalization. For example, the prosecutor and the police, having been systematically sensitized for years, inform the family of a patient in crisis what the mobile has to offer and they get in touch with us directly in order either to avoid an involuntary hospitalization or, if hospitalization is necessary, to obtain the consent of the suffering person. So it is really about keeping the persons in their community through a collaborative effort. Has there been an evaluation of the practice and its impact on involuntary hospitalizations? The percentage of involuntary hospitalizations is much lower than in prefectures where no, no mobile units are active. This may be ascribed to the fact that mobile units act as points of reference for persons with mental health problems and ensure continuity in the care of patients at every stage of his, of his or her life and the development of his or her condition and connection with the necessary services. We should not expect that the suffering person will seek a service that is far removed from his place or after a potential hospitalization. Key factors of success are thus the proximity to the persons and the continuity of care. What about the main challenges? The main challenge should be to expand the network of mobile mental health units so that they cover all remote areas and operate as a filter to hospitalizations, especially involuntary admissions. Another challenge is that the model can be adapted to cover the emerging psychosocial needs of other vulnerable groups, such as refugees, or as a part of housing first model for homeless people with mental health problems. The government has already started reinforcing the capacity of some mobile mental health units with more staff so that they can perform crisis intervention in patients' home in order to decrease the number of hospitalizations, especially involuntary. Well, it sounds like you have interesting future steps ahead. Thank you very much, Dimitris, for taking the time to discuss with us. So, that's it for this episode of Empowering Minds. We hope this gave you some food for thoughts about coercive measures and particularly about promising practices to reduce and end coercion in mental health care. A million thanks again to our guests and thank you all for listening to this new episode. If you want to find out more on this important topic, I invite you to have a look at MHE's recent report compiling promising practices across Europe, which you can find on the Mental Health Europe website.